Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Marielle Heller takes us behind the scenes of her new biographical drama, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. The film retells the story of the real-life friendship between television icon Fred Rogers and journalist Tom Juneau. The story fictionalizes Juneau as a skeptical writer named Lloyd Vogel, who is assigned to do a story on Mr. Rogers. Vogel is ultimately swayed as Rogers' kindness triumphs over his cynicism and he learns about empathy and decency from America's most beloved neighbor. In addition to A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Ms. Heller's directorial credits include the feature film Can You Ever Forgive Me and episodes of the series Casual. She was nominated for the DGA's First Time Feature Film Award for her 2015 film The Diary of a Teenage Girl. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Heller spoke with director Tamara Jenkins about filming A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hi, guys. (laughs) Um, Hi. I had the privilege of seeing a rough cut of the movie um, and then watched it in my house on a link and then got to watch it with an audience in a real uh, theater, and it's so beautiful. Thanks. And congratulations. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, this, um, this is a dorky thing to start with, but I just, there was such great sound work. I mean, because I couldn't tell when I watched it at home. Yeah. Um, and there's that beautiful, like, high-pitched thing that you... That you put in when he's getting emotional. We called it the ear ringing. Oh, it's very. Yes. And at first, I thought that there was like, um, I think the first time feedback. I noticed it was in the wedding, right? Mm-hmm. And then at first, I thought it was feedback, and I and then I thought, wow, that's a really. And then I saw that it was this kind of great sound device. Can you talk about it a little? Yeah, yeah, that was sort of something that was in from the, almost the very beginning of our edit was this idea that we were trying to kind of help just bring us into Lloyd's experience of what he's going through. Obviously, he's somebody who's sort of, we were trying to also slightly foreshadow his breaking that's coming. Right. Um, that he's somebody who's dealing with a high level of rage rage that's being pent up very deeply and being held, kind of. So we we had many versions of that ear, ear ringing. Sometimes we went too far with it. There were versions where we kind of took it too far and had to kind of pull it back but it was um something we started early early on with the edit i mean it's subtle but it's there and you feel it almost in a vibrating sound work makes such a huge difference and getting to see a movie in a nice theater with nice sound it's so wonderful and then you just imagine everyone's gonna go off and just watch your movie on their phone and you're like cool (laughs) um so can you talk about Obviously, you didn't, you didn't write the script, so it came to you. And um, I worked with the writers for a long time. On the at script, once so. you signed yeah. on. Yeah. But when it came to you, and I want to ask you about that, but when it arrived mm-hmm. and um, how did you, so what happened? I knew the writers, Noah and Micah, because we had worked together. I did an episode of Transparent and we had met and become friends. And 
they had told me about this script. And at the time when we first met, I think I had a six month old and they were parents also. And, um, they kind of described to me that it was, had more surrealistic elements to it, but also was about Mr. Rogers. And I was like, I should be directing that movie. I said that to them and they were kind of like, Oh, we don't know you. Um, (laughs) anyway, there were other iterations of how the movie was going to get made that never came to be. And so, when the movie came to me, I already remembered that I knew about it a little bit. And it was sort of just one of those moments where it it came to me in the right time. I, I had made Can You Ever Forgive Me? I think I had just locked edit and was sort of finally feeling like I was close to, that I was ever going to work again past that movie. Like when you're working on a movie, you can only think about that one yeah. thing and you're just living, breathing it. And I was sort of just coming up for air from Can You Ever Forgive Me? When this script arrived in my inbox, Peter Seraf. Our producer sent it to me, and um, at the and then by then I had a two year old, and the only show I had let him watch at that point was Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, which is the modern day incarnation of Mister Rogers that is made by the Fred Rogers Company, oh. and it's every parent I know of little kids. It's like our parenting hack. It's this show that uses all of Mister Rogers' teachings, and it's an animated show based on all the characters in the neighborhood of make believe. And a lot of them have his songs slightly altered and made like a little bit more simple and repeated. But like every parent I know knows certain things from that show. Like when you need to go potty, stop and go right away, (laughs) flush and wash and be on your way. So like, this was my life, (laughs) you know? And, um, so when the script came to me, it was everything about it just felt, um, like it was sort of meant to be. And I, and I was also thinking about how do I raise a kind person in the world? And it feels like we're in a time in our nation's history where we don't have a lot of role models for how to be a good person. And so Fred felt like this beam of light where I felt like I, I want to live for the next three years with Fred's voice in my ear. That would be a gift. And maybe it would help me become a slightly better parent. Um, and so everything about it just felt really important in this moment, you know? Um, so anyway, I signed on pretty quickly. Interesting. And were you a Mr. Rogers uh, watcher as a child? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. It's like we sort of all watched Mr. Rogers. But it's funny because I don't have, and I think a lot of people who grew up with the neighborhood, it's it's almost pre-conscious memory. It's like in your DNA. It's I can't remember watching TV when I was two or three. I kind of remember outgrowing Mr. Rogers and thinking I was too jaded for it. And I had younger siblings who still watched it. And I've now in all of my wonderful research about Fred have learned he knew that kids went through that and accepted that. He knew that kids were going to reject him at some point, um, which I find really sweet. Was there, um, actually, I guess it's this, well, in fact, every movie you've made is based on a yeah, that's Real not intentional. I know. True. I didn't realize yeah. that until I've made three because movies. Phoebe Glockner. Yep. And then, um, and then Lee, Lee is real. real. And then and now Fred Mr. Rogers. Rogers. Oh, but he's obviously the most, um, you know, Famous. everyone knows who he is. Yes. So was there anxiety about how am I gonna? Yeah. Yeah. The, my first two movies were based on real people that nobody had ever right. heard of. So that's, so you can get away easier. with it. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think. I, I mean, a lot of people ask me what the biggest challenge of making this movie was, and the truth of the matter is making this movie has been a joy. It's been relatively painless and really a very, very positive experience. But the biggest challenge was probably 
stopping that, um, just not letting myself think about how much people wanted this movie or like how many people would have certain expectations about what the movie should be and how many people feel like Mr. Rogers is their person. I mean, the number of people who've told me that they actually sort of thought Mr. Rogers was their dad growing up is like staggering. Mm -hmm. People who've said my dad wasn't really around, I sort of thought Mr. Rogers was my dad. Like he meant so much to so many people and that is a lot of pressure. <laughs> um, and so... I just want to point out right here that our cinematographer is sitting right here in the here. audience, Jody Lee Lipes. Here. Just here. caught him right there. He's right, right there. Anyway, I'm Didn't he sure do it's such true. a beautiful job? I mean, the, the he fought so hard for the way we filmed this movie, which was that we we really wanted to create the neighborhood, create the show in a totally authentic way, and um, and that meant tracking down cameras that were identical to the ones that they filmed the original show on, which we had to get from England. And we just went through so much to try and design the look of this show because, because of that DNA thing about how the memory of Mr. Rogers is like in our bones. We needed people who saw what we recreated to have that heart palpitation that happens to all of us when, when we see old footage of Mr. Rogers, you know, and we needed to recreate that in a way that felt so authentic and that, Anyway, I'm really glad you're here, Jody. Um, yeah, I thought that was really great. I mean, the format of uh, the what is, I mean, it's video, yeah, and um, it has its own glow and weirdness. Yeah, it has a lot of irregularities yeah, to it, and, and it that is you can't fake. It, we tried. We went through our VFX house. We tried to fake it digitally. It never looked right. There was something about shooting it in the real way that was. Yeah. You can't. You could you can't not fake that. Yeah, yeah. because the whole thing. You, it well, it sell it, because it feels like it's happening to you. It's sensorial. It's it is. Yeah, not just like a look. It's no, like a and it vibration. Can't feel slick. You yeah. know, our whole goal with the movie was like that. The look had to feel tactile and human and real because Fred, his show was that. I mean, it was not a highly produced show. It was very, uh, you know. They had the same set for 35 years. They filmed it in this studio. Everything was sung live. Mistakes were left in. It had that quality that it's very human, and that's what we loved. And, you know, we went to a lot of detail in the making of the movie, too. Like, something I wasn't even really thinking about until the other day I was having a conversation with the composer about how we, we made Tom Hanks sing live, which you really don't do in movies. Like, you, oh, they always make you do a pre-record and have the person sing to a backing track and it can't like everyone's really uncomfortable with the idea of having, especially like a big movie star sing live on the day. But we had in our heads, this idea of like, it won't feel right. Yeah. Like Mr. Rogers, unless he sings live, but that's really hard to do. He, and he really pulled it off. So um, let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, working with Tom Hanks and you've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> He really was familiar. I can't remember where I've seen him he's before. He's got a but future, that guy. Yeah, he's kind of good. Yeah. Um, he, uh, so so how, how did that happen? How did you guys, I read an article <laughs> that said you met him at a birthday party, like a grandchild's birthday party or something like that. Is that true? It is true. Okay. I'm friends with his son, Colin. Okay. And um, I, I was at Colin's kid's birthday party in a backyard and was talking to Tom Hanks as one does. And um, 
he somehow started talking about this New York Times article about women directors. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm in that. And he was like, what? Who are you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I directed a movie called The Diary of a Teenage Girl. And anyway, I'm quoted in the article you're talking about. And he was like, oh, I should see your movie. I was like, oh, sure. Like, I didn't think he would actually, you know, act, go see my movie and then follow up. But he did because he's that kind of a person. Like two weeks later, I got an email like, I saw your movie. I loved it. Why don't you come have a meeting with me? And so I went and had a meeting with him and we just kept in touch over the years. He kind of kept tabs on me as I was making Can You Ever Forgive Me? And um, it was sort of like, maybe we'll figure out a way to work together one day. And then um, when I signed on to this movie, the producer said to me like, well, Tom Hanks has always been our top choice for Mr. Rogers, but he's passed on the project three times already. So he's not going to do it. And I was like, well, he'll probably say no, but I'll give it one more chance. I kind of have a re relationship with him, oddly. And I sent it to him. And I think the real difference was I also, I explained to him that it wasn't a biopic to me, that it, it was a character piece and um, that I felt like it had potential to have real social impact and that it wasn't, um, I wasn't interested in, in an impression. I wasn't interested in prosthetics. I wasn't interested in him doing like an impression of Mr. Rogers. And so he was like, okay, let me think about everything you've just told me and go read it. And he signed on within a week and everyone was kind of like, how they did you like, do Whoa, that? that Mariel Heller girl. Yeah. I was like, I'll never perform a miracle like that again <laughs> in my life. It was amazing. That's amazing. Um, uh, so what was the process of, um, finding the performance with, uh, the actor? Obviously he came in with a lot of yeah, we <laughs> experience, but we rehearsed. I always really like to rehearse, which some actors are less open to than others. Um, but he was, was he a really rehearser? down. Yeah. He was really into it. He actually, but was he in general a rehearsal? Yeah, okay. he was a rehearser. And in fact, he's told me that he has had other directors he's worked with who hate rehearsal and he's kind of on the side gone with other actors and rehearsed because right. he really does like to rehearse. Um, and so we had about a week where Matthew and Tom and I just sat and spent time kind of working on it. I come from theater, so I tend to like to rehearse a little bit like a play where you just sit around a table read through the script in chronological order, talk through anything that comes up, get to have time to kind of just literally track out the scenes of like, what's the emotional arc here? What's the rhythms? Like, how does it feel? Not as much about getting it up on your feet, but just w really kind of going through the, the text in a deep way. And then, um, so we did that. And then the tricky thing for him was we filmed for two weeks without him. We basically did all of the Chris Cooper stuff at the beginning of the movie. So he had to kind of come into what was a pretty well-formed machine that was running um, and be Tom Hanks, you know, right. um, which is hard. And also there was a lot of anticipation about Mr. Rogers. I, I've, I keep flashing back to this one day that I feel like was the day that his performance clicked in in a real way. And it was... It was his third day on set, but it was the first day that we filmed on the neighborhood set. And we were going to do the whole opening of the film. So we were going to do the sweater and the shoes and the song and the whole thing. And it was also the day that we were sort of unveiling our set that we had been working on for months, building, recreating meticulously the neighborhood set 
in the stage where they filmed the original Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, in the exact orientation where they filmed it. And I just remember arriving to set that Monday morning, and it felt like there were 200 extra people there, just everybody, like, so excited. Um, there was so much anticipation, and it was all with the best intentions, but it felt like crazy high pressure. And Tom is the nicest guy in the world, and you would never feel like he would ever be rude to anybody, and yet I could feel, even for him, I was like, this has got to feel so intense to feel like everybody here is here to be like, how's he going to do? Is he going to do it? And, um, and Fred always said that he, when he would record the show, he imagined one child on the other side of the television set. And I just thought like, how can Tom do this performance with 300 people here just staring at him? And so I just kicked everybody out. And it was one of those moments where I was like, everybody's going to hate me. Like, all anyone wants to do is be in this room when this moment happens, when this great experience happens of watching Tom turn into Fred Rogers. But it's going to ruin the movie if there are 200 extra people. Or no, it wasn't 200, but that's right. what it felt like. There's all these people around who I, I didn't even know who half of them were just watching this moment. And so I just kicked everybody out who didn't need to be in the room. Every single person had to leave so that he could feel... Like he didn't have to perform for this giant crowd and he could really just perform for one person. And then I think we did that take like 22 or 23 times because it was all one take. And it just settled in. Like we found Fred in this moment of really letting him have the space and time to do it in a relaxed way. But it, that, that was kind of the moment where I think it all gelled. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I love how the movie, I don't know, okay, let's talk about, it's such a tone, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, like, what is tone? And I was like, oh, it's like this unifying, like, holder that, you know, in stories and books or movies, this this unifying um, way it's held together. Yeah. Do you ever think about tone? Yeah. Or is, but sometimes tone can just be an accumulation of every little detail the director selects or this pre, you know what I mean? Like I feel, like, two ways I feel like what happens is you, you have a tone in your head that you're imagining the movie's going to be and you think everyone imagines Most. it the exact same way. <laughs> and then as soon as they say something, you're like, That's well, that would never fit with our tone. And you're like, oh, right, I haven't explained what our tone is or like figured out how to put it into terms that make sense for other people. And that's where prep becomes so important, right? Where you're really making sure everyone's making the same movie, mm -hmm. but it is hard to, I mean, because it can get out of your, I mean, that's the whole job though, right? Yes, is containing to, not let the it, make, to keep it in its not, thing. And it's all of these people with wonderful intentions who might pull the tone in the wrong mm -hmm. direction. You know, it's people, it's everybody working on the movie who has a great idea about how this could look or this could go or this costume could take it in the wrong tone. You know, every aspect could take it into the wrong tone. Um, and so much of your job is to, like, keep the one vision clear mm -hmm. and be able to weed out the things that are not. And obviously hire people who you believe have the same vision as you do like Jody, who see the movie in the same way you do and can sometimes articulate it in their specific 
terms for their department as well, you know, can translate. I tend to talk, I think, mostly in emotional terms of how things are meant to feel. And that might mean I won't know what lens we need to use or what the lighting needs to be exactly, but I just know how it needs to feel. And so hopefully department heads and people who are better at their craft than I would ever be can then take that language and translate it in the right way. And then obviously you have to be able to say, that's not what I meant, <laughs> or this isn't, this is feeling too much like this or whatever it is. And, um, but the tone of this was tricky to nail down. You know, we, we had these two worlds of Lloyd's world and Fred's world. And there was sort of an expectation that Fred's world would be the tone, mm -hmm. I think there. And so it was sort of, how do we, how do we find with everything, with music, with transitions, with the way we shot it, like how does everything have these two very separate worlds that we need to feel dissonant, but we also need them to feel connected. So it was trying to find ways that bridged these gaps, but also pointed out the differences between these two men. Um, and then how did those worlds slowly come together? How does Fred's world affect Lloyd's world? So that became a lot of the discussion in prep was sort of about these two worlds. How do we establish these two worlds? What are the looks of these two worlds? And how do they come together? And then using the, you know, the device of the little miniature Miniatures. world, mm -hmm. which is so great. And, and, and then I was thinking how in, um, in the Phoebe Glockner, uh, teenage diary of a teenage girl, you used the animation mm -hmm. so well. And I was like, wow, she's really good at like incorporating these devices. I in learned this a very lot with diary about how to incorporate like a concept like that because I spent so many years developing that script and figuring out how something that's this weird artistic thing could play in as sort of connecting tissue and a lot of what I learned was that it had to be emotionally driven and um, it had to come out of a place of need you know it couldn't just be sprinkled on top or therefore there there had to be a reason for it in the same way that when you do voiceover right Everyone says, never do voiceover. Voiceover is terrible. But if you're going to do voiceover, it better be there. It can't be redundant. It has to be there because it needs to be there or it's doing something. Maybe it's telling the opposite story of what you're seeing visually or whatever it is. In the same way, I think these kind of visual devices that I do like to use in movies, they, they have to function in some way separate. They, they have to have their own function that is not based on, it can't just be an idea, yeah. you know? Oh, it felt very integral, but it, uh, you know, maintaining that tone of going into a very realistic world. Right. We wanted to, I mean, our concept was sort of like, take Mr. Rogers and expand out on it, but kind of keep the rules and the homemade quality and the feeling and the emotion of it. Yeah. And the thing that you feel when you see that opening Mr. Rogers miniature, which we recreated meticulously exactly as his was, you know, there is something where you, you kind of go, oh. I remember, I remember that. And we wanted that feeling to kind of continue with all of the miniatures too. Did you, so is, are the, um, the, the little documentaries that are in Mr. Rogers, those like, how picture do you make? Picture pictures. Yeah. Is that they what they're call called? Them, they call them picture pictures. Picture yeah. pictures. So the documentary, whatever the Mr. Rogers picture picture of the making of the magazine, but wait, is that, what's the first one that we see? That's it. It's the making of the is magazine. Is that the only one we see? I feel like we, we saw go back to it. Oh, I see. We yep. go back to it the second time when yep. the article's coming out. Exactly. Um, that was great. 
And that was shot. It's really we convinced. Sh- I was like, wait a minute, this is archival. Yeah, that's we've had this so many people ask archival. us if that was archival. No, but it's not because it's it, nope. it's really good. Where is this Jody person? Will you wave your hand? Put your oh, hand there. On. You are okay. I was like blinded here. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. Um, I know. I love when people ask us if things are archival, if the, we borrowed their real puppets, if like all these things no, make no, us really... so happy, and we're like, no, you have no idea how much work we did to recreate these things. But I'm glad. And you so think... this is a door. So the Arsenio Hall. Will you like do something? You the Arsenio Hall is. Green yeah, in. And yeah. Did, that was pretty. I was like, wow, how do they do that? That's pretty groovy. Yeah, yeah. I know they can do things. They can do things like yeah, that. Yeah, the VFX. But I still am like, oh my god. I know, and I'm we wanted it to feel about it. that. That was like nerve wracking. VFX really to make sure it would look and feel right. And we went. I mean, we did probably twelve passes on just that Arsenio clip to make sure it integrated right. And obviously, it has to be shot right. Right, and, and then you got to do the beautiful, um, the black and white. Stuff that we're all familiar with because we saw that documentary a year and a half ago or whatever. Yeah, which, and and it was really great. The black and white sequence of him talking. F- hearing. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is now in the movie a lot less than it was at one point. But yeah. Yeah. It's so, it was fun doing that archival stuff. I mean, it was, yeah, it was nerve wracking because. You want to do it right. And, yeah, yeah. You want it to feel right and you didn't want it to feel too hokey or just be so. No, I mean, we were very good. aware. One thing that we've been aware of the whole time is like it's it's tom hanks playing mr rogers like there's such it was such a hurt in some ways it was such a gift because people have this emotional feeling about tom hanks they feel similarly about him as they do to mr rogers so that was wonderful but then it's also a hurdle because you're like we people know they're watching tom hanks and like we we went through a lot with the beginning of the movie of this was always the plan for the beginning of the movie that you just get dropped right into the show but there were times where we sort of questioned, is this the right way to start the movie? Because it's so jarring at first. It feels you sort of have this experience if you watched The Neighborhood where it all feels right and you see the stoplight and the miniature and it feels you're like, I know this, I know this. You pan over, oh, the door's opening, here he comes. And then you're like, oh, it's, it's Tom Hanks, it's not Mr. Rogers. And that there's sort of your brain starts to freak out and go like, no, I, I don't know if this is right. And and But then you settle into it and ultimately we came to this idea of that you just have to go drop people into the deep end and get over the shock of it being Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers and then that once you do, once you buy in, you're totally in. But it was something we were sort of fighting with the whole time of like, how much is he going to look like Tom Hanks? How much is he going to look like Mr. Rogers? With this but, archival footage, like... But the authenticity of the f- the way it's photographed... It's it, it it like you forget that it's Tom Hanks. You yeah. really do. You yeah. just because I, I remember seeing it at the rough cut and you being worried about that. And I mean, there was just like a flicker of a second. Yeah. But I was so convinced by. And I think that always happens when you do a movie about a real life person. Like there is going to be a moment, but that was why his performance had to be so transformative and had to feel so effortless, which is so tricky for an actor to really pull off. You know, it actually if you. F- felt like you were watching him trying to get the perfect intonation or sit the perfect... If you were watching the work, it was going to feel wrong because Fred was such an effortless, present, still person. So I really... I I think Tom... You know, I've gotten weirdly defensive because a lot of people have kind of been like, well, yeah, it just made sense. Tom Hanks, Mr. Rogers. And I'm like, no, you don't know how much work went into this performance in order to be so open and vulnerable and present and in that 
essence that is not really that much like Tom Hanks. Yeah. I can't believe people just think he just walked on. I, and, I really think people like there were things when we when we premiered I mean, the movie weird because Toronto effortlessness is is effortful. Yeah. yeah. I guess I just was kind of hearing the sentiment when we premiered the movie in Toronto where everyone was like, oh, Tom slips into Mr. Rogers like the sweater he should have always worn or something. Like there was sort of this like mentality of like, he just slipped on that sweater and he was Mr. Rogers. And I'm like, oh my God, no. I mean, it was, and you know, everybody here knows what really goes into this making of movies. But I think for the general public, maybe they just feel like somehow that just, no big deal, just happened. But the truth is, it's it could have gone really wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um did lights just change in here and it was that some Got indication romantic. that I'm supposed to do something like ask the audience questions? Is that it? Yes. Okay. So I am going to do that. I'm doing that. I don't know. Okay. So There's and I can barely there. see cuz clearly just I couldn't point, see the I DP. Think. I'm going to go to that person. Okay, so what I think he was saying was was the concept of the story uh which is this to, you know, a journalist's relationship with Mr. Rogers, was that always the story or was it ever like dead on biopicish? I think? Um, it was never when I was involved dead on biopicish. but, uh, for me, I think what, what attracted me to the script right away and what I felt like worked so well was I don't think Mr. Rogers could be the protagonist of a movie, of a narrative movie. It's a great documentary and I think it's a great companion piece for our movie, but I always felt like if a character is so good and they're already good and they can't go through an enormous narrative arc, they can't be the lead of your movie. They're just too good, but he makes a great antagonist. He elicits genuine life-changing like foundational shifts in the people around him which actually makes him a wonderful antagonist so I was so it's just my own personal taste I'm not really that interested in biopics and and probably wouldn't have made the movie if it felt like it was more of a straight biopic but um I just thought it was such a smart way in and I also think for a lot of us not for everybody but for a lot of us who are maybe more neurotic and cynical, Lloyd is a great con, like he's a great way in for us to, to kind of get Fred's message because we do kind of come to Fred at this, in this day and age with a lot of cynicism and a lot of like, come on, he can't be that great. And, um, Lloyd kind of therefore can speak for all of us in some way. And he's a character who truly needs that kind of change. And I don't know, kind of becomes us. For some of us, for other people, maybe they're they're already further in their evolution and they're more like Fred. Um, but yeah, so for me, that was just always such a smart part of the movie. And also the framing device of it kind of being an episode of Mr. Rogers for adults, that the whole movie was essentially an episode of Mr. Rogers. That was in the script when I came to it as well. I'm going to ask you, I mean, no, I, it is open to the audience, but I do have a question because we started with that. I, we never got to. So in terms of your, you said that you worked with the writers on mm -hmm. the script. Can you talk a little bit about the adjustments that. I mean, I think for me, because I'm also a writer, I like can't direct a movie unless I've gotten to really massage and work on the script for a long time and feel like I know it inside and out. Um, and a lot of what we worked on was sort of Lloyd's journey and what his what his problem was, you know, like where, where is he coming from and what's, what's the issue really at hand? And I know for me and for a lot of my friends, when we became parents and part of what I related to so much was that there's this 
moment where you're becoming a parent, your own childhood comes into reflection. Your mortality becomes incredibly apparent to you. It becomes sort of a reckoning of your soul of like, who do I want to be? Okay, now I'm going to care for this person. There's this real shift that happens or can happen when you're a parent. And I know for a lot of friends of mine who either had parents who had passed away before they became parents or who had estranged relationships with their parents, that moment of becoming a parent brought those parental relationships into light in such a new way. And I found that part of the story to be the the thing that hooked me emotionally. So that became, it was already about his relationship with his dad, but sort of clicking into what Lloyd's real issues were and where they were coming from and what that felt like and kind of bringing myself back to those early days of being a parent and what that does to your kind of psyche was really, and then also kind of his relationship with his wife and where it needed to go by the end. And it was really important to me that what he learned from Fred in the end was not somehow that he just got work success, but that he chose to become a better father and a better husband and that he chose to take time away from work and that we, it's pathetically radical to see a man choosing to spend time with his kid and that that's the lesson of a movie. That It's amazing how rare I've never that seen is. that before. Yeah. yeah. And like that, you know, just having moments of stillness in the movie, moments of quiet where you watch him prepare a bottle for his baby. Like these were things that were really important for me to add in and to have like these moments where he's actually connecting with his baby and you see a man singing to his baby. And, you know, like I said, I think everyone has the best intentions, but the number of times that I got asked to cut those things, like cut him preparing a bottle for his baby, like, let's keep going. Let's, this isn't, we don't really need this in the story. And I was like, this is the whole point of the story is that he's connecting to this part. And also it is so important that we see images of men doing these things that we never get to see on film. Thank you. Um, okay, so another question. All right. Um, all right, that person. Did everybody hear that? So uh, the question was about the two scenes, the scene in Fred's New York apartment where the puppets come out and the scene in the Chinese restaurant with the minute of silence. Um, the, the, the Chinese restaurant scene I'll just talk about was sort of the scene I... I knew what I wanted it to be the most from the moment I read the script. I was just so clear. Um, the way it was written in the script, I think, was that there was a flicker that maybe his eyes came to the camera um, for a brief second. And I just remember being like, no, this is the moment where we're asking our audience to engage, that this is not a passive act in the same way that when children watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, he was asking them to actually participate and kids would often say, he's speaking to me. He had to speak to us, right? So thank you. So that was something I knew really early on was, no, I'm going to have him look right in the camera and we're just going to go there and sit in it. And no one fought me on it. I don't know why. <laughs> but um, the other thing that happened in that scene was we peppered the restaurant with the real people from Fred's life. So his wife, Joanne, is there. The real Mr. McFeely is there. The real Bill Eisler is there. His nephew is there. The real Margie is there. A bunch of people who worked on the neighborhood are there. Um, so it turned out that shooting the film, shooting that scene actually was one of the most stressful days of the whole shoot because it just felt like a huge amount of pressure. And there were all of these people that I wanted to feel really happy about the whole experience, too. And it was my birthday. And, um, and, but it, you know, it was a scene that just was, 
it was the first scene we filmed with Tom where I forced the actors to sit in so much silence, which then became what we did for basically the entire shoot. But that was sort of like the cold shower of the shoot of like, we're going to sit in this for a long, 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 long time. Um, and they went with it somehow. Um, but anyway, so that scene just was pretty clear from the entire time. And the New York apartment scene was also a scene that I felt like we all had. It, it was the scene that just solidified their relationship and was so clear, but it's also like a little play. Like it has a million twists and turns. Whereas the, the Chinese restaurant has this one huge shift where everything turns. And it was, the, you know, this minute of silence thing was something Fred really did. He was, it was known for doing that. He did it at the Emmy daytime Emmys when he won an Emmy famously. They only would let him do 10 seconds. He asked to do a minute. They would only let him do 10 seconds. Um, That's a TV minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but he Everybody would do it famously that. like in dinner parties too. Um, but the New York apartment scene actually has like a million twists and turns and is a very complex emotional scene. That was a scene we rehearsed a lot actually because they're not moving around, but it's, it's a, basically a sword fight. It's got so many retreats and advances and moments of, it, it's super, super emotionally complex. And I could feel it with the actors when we filmed it, that we were sort of walking a tightrope of that scene. And I kept forcing them to sit in more silence, to take longer. You know, the moment where he says, it can't have been easy to have Mr. Rogers as your dad. I made Tom sit so long before he was allowed to do anything. And you just realize actors and people in life, you want to move and you want to respond and you want to like not just absorb and sit and listen. And so much of this movie was about listening because Fred really listened. Part of what he did that was so amazing was he truly listened. And we don't listen anymore. <laughs> you know, it's not really our culture is not to listen um, and even just the way we edit now, you know, it's like we're all cross cutting and L cutting and everything's you're you're responding before anyone's even finished a sentence in general. So we were very aware that there was a pacing thing with this movie that was going to be different. It was going to sit. It was going to let moments play out in silence. Um, so anyway, those are two scenes that I feel very proud of. Thank you. Thank you. Just giving a shout out to our composer, who also happens to be my brother, who, yes, and he's done all three of my movies, and he took a lot of themes that came from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that were written by Fred and wove them into the score and expanded upon them, and it was sort of the same idea with the taking this world of Mr. Rogers and letting it get bigger and change and it, it was a complex tone question, and score plays into tone so much as well. Um, his question was about my pacing as a director, and that I do have a relaxed pace, I think, as a director in general. I think it comes from theater. I have like something because I'm, I didn't go to film school, and um, I probably just don't know the rules I'm breaking. Um, I tend to. I tend to hear scenes instead of necessarily see them. Like I think a lot of directors approach, if if you're going from a sense point of view, a lot of directors, their first sense is sight and not sound. But for me, like sound is ahead of sight when it comes to like how a scene, I think about how like Shakespeare used to say, in Shakespeare's time you would say, let's go hear a play. Um, there's something about rhythms and um, 
Like I'll know how a scene needs to sound rhythmically before I know how it needs to look. It's just something about coming from theater, I think. And that's part of why I rehearse because there is sort of a feeling that we need to get the rhythms right between the actors, even if it's going to change in the edit, but there's something about getting the rhythms right. Um, which I think, yeah, then sort of plays into pacing. I mean, my husband is a, a comedy director. He worked for Saturday Night Live for a long time. He makes all the digital shorts, things like in a box and stuff. And like he edits like, I mean, they edit their stuff like the fastest thing. And anytime he watches me edit, he's like, what are you doing? This is so slow. <laughs> like he can't stand it. And then later he'll be like, I don't know what I'm talking about for you. Don't listen to me. You're doing something totally different, but it's making my brain hurt because he's so used to this style of editing that is just like the opposite. It's like, anyway, it's be before you know, moves ahead of the audience. Don't let them catch up to you. You got to be moving way faster than they have any idea. Um, and that was something they sort of revolutionized when they were on SNL. But anyway, so I don't know. It's just my own taste, I guess. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks said when I cast Matthew Reese, he was like, I'm glad he didn't say this in front of Matthew, but he was like, this is a really hard part that Matthew has to play. <laughs> I was like, it is. <laughs> it's, um, it's actually a much harder part in a lot of ways um, because he's, well, he has such a huge emotional journey. Casting him was so important to find the right person who both felt like the smartest person in the room. Matthew's like one of the quickest people I've ever been in a room with. He's just lightning fast. He's also really funny. But he's somebody whose mind is working so quickly that you would buy he would be a journalist who's thinking a million steps ahead. He also seems pretty jaded in that funny way. Like he feels like somebody who's kind of got the world figured out in some way, but he's also a new dad. So he had this deep emotional connection to Lloyd in kind of a, a real, like his life had been rocked by having a baby, you know, his, he had been a certain type of person and then he became a dad. Um, so he, he's also somebody, I mean, I was a fan of his from the Americans and I just felt like he was somebody who wasn't afraid of his own anger. I think a lot of a lot of actors and a lot of movie stars don't actually like to make themselves look bad. That's just true. Like people don't they like to look good and they like to look like a nice guy or like a kind person or like a real and not a lot of people, you know, I kind of come from a tradition of actors in theater who like you want to play the hardest darkest roles, but weirdly what I find with movie stars sometimes is they don't want to go to the darker places because they don't they're more concerned about their own image as an actor as a movie star and so they don't want to go to a place where they could look bad or people start to not think of them in the way they want to be thought of and Matthew doesn't have that he's an actor he's a real actor he loves roles and characters and getting into them from a deep place and so as soon as we met I was just so clear that he was the right person for the role and um and he just, he had a lot of access to the whole range of Lloyd. And he had to go to so many really tricky places. So I like a close-up. <laughs> it was always in the plan. I think when you're in the perspective of a certain character, when a movie is so specifically from one character's perspective, being in a close-up and experiencing someone's face really close-up for me is just the thing that helps me feel them. Um, and he has a very expressive face. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I've only actually really made movies that are super, 
from one character's perspective and that are, and I, I always do like feeling like I'm on there close up a lot. Like I, I think I fall in love with my main actors faces and, and work so closely with them to craft their performance. And I get really attached to little eye movements or little things and want to, I don't know, so much of the emotional arc ends up playing out on whether you're with them or not. So whether you're feeling them and a lot of that comes down to, I think the close up. Oh yeah. It's available online. The original article that Tom Juno wrote, can you say hero is one of the most beautiful articles you'll ever read, but it's, Beautiful because it's totally weird and doesn't feel like an article that 1998 Esquire. You can look it up. It's very easily available. Also, Tom Juno just wrote a follow-up article last week for the Atlantic, which is really beautiful. And it's about this movie and his experience being the person that the movie is about. Um, they will both make you cry. Um, I think part of what was so touching about that article is, I mean, it really isn't about Mr. Rogers. It's about him. And he kind of had this experience of going to write this article about Mr. Rogers. And he will say that you can look back at his writing and you can tell his writing before Fred and after Fred because he just was sort of out for blood in a different kind of way before he met Fred. He, he He's like, I wasn't a jerk, but I saw the world through a negative lens. And after Fred, he... He had these wishes for Tom, which were like um, that he would see the wonder in the world and that he would find the good and things that became kind of guiding principles, I think, in how, how he wrote after he met Fred. It's worth looking up. It's worth looking up his articles. And he, Tom Juno's been with us sort of on our little publicity tour and doing the rounds and is going to be seen with Joanne Rogers doing some interviews this weekend and stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tamara. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more great Q&As with directors Ryan Johnson and Casey Lemons. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 